We're going to be in Ephesians this evening. If you want to turn there, we're going to we're going to cover the whole book tonight. So Ephesians. Ephesians is I mentioned this morning, it's really a simple book in the sense of how it's structured. It's not a simplistic book by any means, and some of the richest theology that we have comes from the book of Ephesians. Um, But it is a simplistic book in the sense of how it's structured. It's very easy to see. Paul has a greeting. He then tells us who we are in Christ. And then at chapter 4, he tells us how to live in light of that. And then at the end of chapter 6, he says goodbye. So he says hello. Tells us who we are in Christ. Chapter 4, he begins to tell us how we live in light of who we are in Christ. And and then chapter 6, he tells them at the end, I'll see you later. Now, the book of Ephesus, one of the things that makes it unique, it's hard to discern why Paul wrote it. You read Galatians, you know why Paul wrote Galatians. It's because the Judaizers were attacking the churches of Galatia. If you read Colossians, you see why. It's because they were false worshiping. If you read Philippians, it's because of two ladies that were disuni- having disunity in the church. You read Corinthians, well, we know why Corinthians was written. Um, seven, three times he wrote letters to Corinthians because they were such a mess. We just have two of them in our Bibles. Uh, But Ephesians doesn't seem like he's dealing with any corrections. He's just simply giving them instructions on who they are in Christ and then telling them how how to live. And so, praise the Lord that we have this wonderful epistle um, of Scripture. I want you to see that at verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1, Paul then begins to move in the exhortation of how to live. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. From that point on, there's 40 imperatives, or 39. An imperative is a command. Prior to that, there's one imperative. So in in chapters 1, 2, and 3, there's one imperative, and let me read it to you. It's at verse 11 of chapter 2. It's really not an imperative. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made by the flesh by hand. So he, he doesn't even give them a command in those first three letters other than, Hey, I want you to remember who you are. And then when you get to chapter 4, it it swings. And it's so important that we see that order because so often God's commands are rooted in the reality of what God has done for us. You even think of the Ten Commandments. The first commandment begins with, remember the Lord your God and what He has done for you. You shall not have other gods. So it's what God has done. So in the light of what God has done, this is what you're supposed to do. And Ephesians is the clearest example of that. And so I would encourage you, when you go to the book of Ephesians, remember that order. Those first three chapters are telling us who we are in Christ. It tells us the the richness of the mystery of the church. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 instruct us how to live the Christian life. Now, I don't want you to raise your hand, but I just want you to think about this for a second. How many of you are in a year, uh, are reading through the Scripture by the end of the year. Like you, you read the Bible a certain amount of times during the week, and by the end of the year you have read through the entire Bible. I do that every year. 
And I hope that you do that too. Um, I have this mental conversation in my mind every time I come to the book of Isaiah. Okay, this year I'm really going to understand the order of Isaiah and what Isaiah is talking about. And then it never happens. And if that's you on a lot of the books, what we just did in that very, just a couple of minutes of looking at the structure of the book makes it so much simpler to go back and read and understand and understand the flow of thought that God is trying to communicate to us. And so you remember that when you're looking at the scriptures. What I want to do tonight, though, in looking at this, is I want to look at it through um, what Paul is instructing, how every aspect of the Christian life is a work of the triune God. And how he frames all of his arguments in the doctrine of the Trinity. I think that that's so important because the most essential doctrine that we have to have right is the doctrine of God. But yet, if you look at, for instance, Ligonier's every two years, Ligonier Ministry just does a state of theology where they, they go and ask people in the pew, what do you think about these things? The majority of evangelicals are heretics. And, and that's the reality. We don't know who Christ is, and we don't know our triune God. And if we had to say, well, how would we define the Trinity... Well, statistically, the majority of those that would be Christians, I'm not saying they're not Christians, I think they're just immature in their knowledge, would be burned at the stake in Calvin's Geneva. And I say that jokingly, but not really. And so we have a problem with our understanding of God, and so when we go to the Scriptures, we actually see this doctrine beautifully unfold. We know that the word Trinity is never found in Scripture. You don't find a passage of Scripture that says our God is triune. But we see our triune God everywhere throughout the Scriptures. From creation, you see the triune God, all the way through to the book of Revelation, we see our triune God. And the central truth of the Trinity is this. The Lord our God is one. But He's revealed in three persons. One being Three persons. So one being, three persons. Don't get that backwards. If you get three beings, one person, then you have three gods. So it's one being, three persons. And one of the things that Ephesians adds to the conversation is that God has one will and our triune God acts as one. I think oftentimes the way we hear things put forth is Christ does this, and well, the Holy Spirit does this, and the Father does this, and we separate the Trinity to a point where they're distinct and actually separated. And we believe in the, the distinctness of the persons of the Trinity, but we never separate them. So, as one ancient theologian said, is whenever I think of one, my mind automatically goes to the three. 
When I think of the work of Christ, I automatically need to think of the work of the Spirit and the work of the Father. When I think about creation, I need to think about the work of the Father, I need to work, see the work of the Son, and I need to see the work of the Spirit. And here's how we understand this in Scripture. The Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit is spirated from the Father and the Son. They act together. We can never separate one from the three. They work together. All of their works are together. Matthew Barrett says this in his book, Simply Trinity. He says, the three act as one because they are one. They act in virtue of the one nature they hold in common. In theology, this unity... Acts is called inseparable operations. The three persons are without separation or division in their external operations towards the world, whether they be creation, providence, or redemption. Every operation is from the Father through the Son in the Spirit. So memorize that little formula. From the Father through the Son in the Spirit. So when we see the triune God emerge from the pages of Scripture, it's going to be in that order, from the Father, through the Son, and the Spirit. And that is where we get proper Trinitarian theology. So let's look at Ephesians. And you begin to see this unfold with our salvation. I know Clarence on Wednesday night went through this and explained Um, a lot of this already, and so we're just kind of picking up from that. But beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So, who has chosen us? The Father. God the Father. And God the Father has chosen us in whom? In Jesus. Okay, so we see the Father working and we see the Son's work in this. It goes on that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In verse 5, in love, He predestined us. This is the Father predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, verse 7, we have redemption through His blood. Who is this referring to? This is referring to Christ. We have this redemption now in Christ. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. So this is speaking of the Father's work in us in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time, this is verse 10, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Okay, so we have seen the Father's choice of a people to be in Christ for the redemption through the blood of Christ. And so we see the work of God in this, in the Father and in the Son. You keep reading, Paul does not leave out the Holy Spirit. In verse 11, in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. 
So through the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit applies the atonement of Christ to the believer and seals them. And so what we see here is the Father gives a people to the Son. The Son gives His blood for those people, and the Spirit applies that to the person. So when we think of salvation, we say, how are we saved? We're saved by the work of the triune God. We're saved by the work of the triune God. We oftentimes think, well, uh, the Son, Jesus, is the one who died for the sins. The Father didn't die on the cross. The Son died on the cross. But yet we, we, we tend to forget that it's the Father that sent the Son. It's the Father that gives a people to the Son. It's the Son that dies for those people that were given by the Father, and it's the Spirit that applied that. And it's the Spirit that actually empowered Christ to do the work upon the cross. Remember that Christ was anointed by the Spirit and empowered for the work of ministry by the Spirit. And so our salvation is a work of the triune God. When you get into chapter one, uh, excuse me, verse 15, we begin to see knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. When we think of those things, we oftentimes ask for the Holy Spirit to illumine the Scriptures to us, and that's a, a right way to pray. But I want you to notice how Paul frames this, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. Spirit should be capitalized there. and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Notice he's asking that the Father in prayer would give the Spirit in wisdom to those that are in Christ. And our, our very growth in knowledge is a work of our triune God. Now I want you to notice the resurrection and the kingship of Christ beginning in verse 20. That He worked in Christ, this is speaking of the Father when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fulfills all in all. The Father is the one who says is credited with raising the Son. Now, actually, when you read the Scriptures, you see the Son raises Himself. You see in places that the Spirit raises the Son. Here, it's the Father raises the Son, and the Father is the one who puts Him on the throne. And it's the Son who's ruling. And so we see this work of God is not just relegated to just, this is just with the Son, but it's actually a work of God of ruling. You also see this in... Our resurrection. You look at chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive, that's speaking of our resurrection, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So get the language that Paul is using. He has already said the Father raised the Son and placed Him on the throne, and, and he's speaking of the power of God to do this, but then when we get to chapter 2, oh wait, this is the same power that God resurrects you when you're born again and raises you to that throne. It says, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable, immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing work of God to read about what takes place in our salvation and the current reality we have right now that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And the same language that is used of Christ's resurrection, His physical resurrection, His physical ascension to heaven, then is applied to the believer in a spiritual way that we experience right now. That's a work of our triune God. Church unity is a work of our triune God, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 2. You know, when we think of, of church unity and how important and how often that is mentioned throughout Scripture, what you actually begin to see is that unity is inseparable from what is taking place in Christ. And it's a work of our triune God. Beginning in verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So just think about what that's saying, that by the blood of Christ we are brought near. Okay, so this is the work of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And that's that. When you look at the temple courtyard, there was a wall that separated the Gentiles from the Jews. It was a wall of separation. And what he, what's being said here is that Christ broke down the separation between Jew and Gentile. And he's using that temple language there, which would have been a, a dividing wall of hostility. So this is speaking about unity in the church between Jew and Gentile. Two different groups are brought together and made one by a mutual union in Christ, and this was accomplished by His blood. Verse 15, By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to... God, in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, what a beautiful language when it says, for he himself is our peace. What is that referring to? Well, it's telling us in verse 16, is this is that he might reconcile us to God. 
See, we're under the wrath of God. We're children of darkness. We walk in darkness until the blood of Christ secures peace. That we have peace with the Father. Verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Work of Christ is the work of the Spirit and the work of the Father in bringing unity in the church. goes on to say in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, by the Spirit. The unity that is established by the blood of Christ is a work of our triune God. So you think about what we have in our salvation, our current reality of where we're placed in heaven, and then we see what the beauty of unity we have in the church is a work of God. You see the mystery of the gospel beginning in chapter 3 is stated in a Trinitarian formula as well. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 3. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So he's speaking about the Father's grace, and he's a steward of this grace. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. So think about what's said. It's God's grace that's revealed in the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the gospel, is according to God's grace. It is revealed in Christ and revealed by the Spirit. Our very awareness of the gospel is a work of the triune God. And it's amazing that that those who preach and proclaim the gospel are stewards of that gospel, that the triune God works through the proclamation of the gospel through weak, fallible men like Paul. Notice how Paul prays for the church beginning in verse 14. Where he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That is a wonderful prayer. He goes to the Father in prayer and asks that they would that the Spirit would strengthen them and that Christ would dwell in their hearts. When Jesus says that he will send the Spirit in John chapter 14, he actually says, I and the Father will come and dwell with the believer. And so Paul's just simply praying that the triune God be with 
His people. This is a prayer for strength. And what a beautiful way that we can pray for one another. And he continues in verse 18 saying, May that those that he's praying for may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's Paul's prayer that they would know the triune God and His power. He gives us an example of unity beginning in chapter 4. I want you to notice how he says, this is our example. So remember, Chapters 1, 2, 3 were telling us who we are in Christ. Chapters 4, 5, 6 are telling us how to live in light of Christ and what Christ has done for us. So, when you see then, okay, what's an example of unity that we're supposed to model? The triune God. That's the answer Paul gives us. He says in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now here's his example, verse 4. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So what's the example of unity that we're supposed to to follow? How is it that we walk in a manner that's worthy? Well, the arguments for unity and how that we walk in a manner that's worthy is by looking at our triune God is one. And that's how we are to be. So he roots his example in the very nature of God. Still in chapter 4, if you look at verse 20, this begins to deal with sanctification. And I want you to see how he tells us, here's your example for sanctification. Verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Now he's instructing them no longer to walk a certain way. And he says, you don't walk this way because Christ didn't walk that way. So he begins to reference Christ in verse 24. And put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So get the argument that he's making. Christ didn't walk that way, and you're created in the image of God. And then if you keep going, in verse 30, he says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So look at the language that's being put forth here. That we are to follow the example of Christ? That we are created in the image and likeness of God and we're to put on that, that that we have in Christ? And then he says this, is this, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God and not following and walking in a manner that is worthy. Continuing on this same theme, when we're told to imitate God in chapter 5, verse 1, I'm going to go through these verses quickly because there's a lot of them. He says in verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Verse 2, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave us himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So he says be imitators of God and then look at Christ. Look at how Christ exampled this. Verse 5, 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, or that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedient. Verse 17, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. When you see the, the, the title Lord, who is that a reference to? Usually. It's usually a reference to Jesus. You keep going and you look at verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. See, he's contrasting ways of saying things. Verse 20, giving thanks and always and for everything, God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Notice what it's telling us, Paul is telling us here, is to imitate God, and he runs that through a Trinitarian lens of how we understand putting on the new self and putting off the old self. Our passage this morning, which sparked this study for tonight, is we see our armor and strength and power that's available to the Christian is a power and armor from our triune God. In fact, it's explicit here, just as it was before. In verse 10 of chapter 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of his might. This is speaking of the Son. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. This is speaking of the Father. And you go to verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit. So the the power, the armor, the strength that is available to us is that of our triune God, working in the life of, of the believer. Notice how he ends his letter. Verse 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now when you look at the letter of Ephesians the next time, I hope that you see those things. That every aspect of the Christian life is a work of our triune God. And we can't make that mistake of separating the Trinity to division, but actually recognize that a work of the one is a work of the three. And as soon as we think of the one, our mind, as Gregory of Nazianza said, has to go to the three. As Augustine said the same thing. Is that a work of the one is a work of the three. You know, the, the thing is, is that when we're reading Paul's letters, it's not always so obvious. In Ephesians, it's so obvious if we just take the time and go through the passages and look at what he's talking about. But let me give you an example of how you can do this apart from Ephesians. When we think about something like sanctification, how does sanctification work? Well, oftentimes we think of sanctification as a work of the Spirit in our lives. And is that a correct thing to say? Yes, absolutely. But I want you to notice 
how Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 and verse 2. He says to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. In verse 30, he says, And because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, we know that sanctification can be just means setting apart. It can also be that active work of God in our lives to grow us into the image of Christ. But if you go over into 1 Thessalonians, you see that was attributed to Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Who's that referring to? It's the Father. So notice what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, that it's Christ that sanctifies us. What's he say in 1 Thessalonians? It's the Father that sanctifies us. You see in 1 Peter, in chapter 1, in verse 2, Notice what it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit. So who does Peter say sanctifies us? The Spirit. So Paul says in one place, it's the Son that sanctifies you. He says in another place, it's the Father that sanctifies you. And then Peter says, well, it's the Spirit who sanctifies you. So when we think about sanctification... Would we be wrong to say it's the Father who sanctifies us? No. Would we be wrong to say it's Christ that sanctifies us? No. Would we be wrong to say the Spirit sanctifies us? No. Actually, what we would say is it's the triune God that sanctifies us. It's the triune God that saves us and sanctifies us and sees us to the end. It's a work of the triune God. Now, why is this so important? Let me start where we began. Is the most important doctrine is the doctrine of God. If we get the doctrine of God wrong, we're not Christians. That's just the reality. We can't fail to get that wrong. And is it complex? Yeah, because our triune God is incomprehensible. He is infinite. He is immeasurable. So, when we're in heaven, will we understand our triune God? No. We will spend all of eternity learning of an eternal, infinite being. We will never wake up and go, I've learned all there is to know about God. We will be learning of our triune God for all of eternity, and it will never grow old. Now, will we have a better idea? Yeah, absolutely, of course. But we're not going to become infinite in our knowledge because only one is infinite, and that is God. And so we will infinitely be learning of our infinite God throughout all of eternity. What a wonderful thought. Now, there's a couple of points that I want to bring out of this just as, as I hope as helpful for us to think about. That was a fly through Ephesians. And, I mean, we just, we just flew through that really quickly. 
Um, we could spend a long time on it and on this doctrine. But I want, the, I want us to walk away with this. Is I hope this sparks us to take it deeper and to think deeply and meditate upon the revealed work of God. That's it. I want us to walk away from here and to think deeply on what God has revealed of Himself in Scripture and that we see the beauty of His work, that it helps us to see the beauty of doctrine of, of doctrine itself. How do we understand salvation? How is it that we understand sanctification? How is it that we understand unity, the basics of life? How is it that I understand how I grow as a Christian and live this Christian life in the church? We can't understand it properly apart from a proper understanding of our triune God because the Scripture puts it forth in those terms. This is a work of the triune God. There's a second thing that I, I hope this helps us with is this helps us in our prayer life. And how does this help us in our prayer life? Well, look at Paul's prayers. Praying to the Father, to those that are set apart in Christ for the work of the Spirit to take place in their lives. It helps us in our prayer life. And think about this. Oftentimes, and I know this is an accident, someone will be praying to the Father, and before the end of the prayer, they have the Father on the cross being crucified, thanking the Father for dying for us. Well, the Son died for us. The Father sent the Son. And so it helps us to think theologically in our prayers. Should we think theologically in our prayers? Are prayers just purely emotional? No, we, we need to address... God, Jesus teaches us to pray theologically. And so when we pray theologically, we're actually thinking, what does Scripture say about the one to whom we're addressing? And so I believe that when you study these things in Scripture, and you see the role of the Father, the role of the Son, the role of the Spirit working inseparably, it actually helps us and guides us in our prayer life and directs our prayers. Father, thank you, you sent your Son. Jesus, thank you that you came and gave your life. And Holy Spirit, thank you that you applied the redemption of Christ to us. Is that a proper pray to prayer to pray to all persons of the Trinity? Absolutely. Absolutely. There was a movement where um, some well-known theologians say, well, we, we only address the Father. We can't address Jesus in prayers. We can't address the Holy Spirit in prayers. Well, that's not what God teaches us in His Word. It's proper to pray, pray to our triune God. So I think it helps us in our prayers. Then the third thing is, by going through Ephesians like that, and that took maybe 20 minutes or so, do we have a better idea of the book of, of, of Ephesians now? Yeah, well, I think we do. I think not only seeing the bigger structure, but actually seeing some of the, the more minute details. In just a short period of time, we can walk away, and if anyone ever asks us about the Trinity, or if we have to talk about the Trinity, where's a good book you're going to go to now? You're going to go to the book of Ephesians to see the work of our triune God, to think about that. Or if you have someone that comes to your door 
that's a Jehovah's Witness, and they deny our triune God, where's a good place you can go? Take their Bible. So let's go look at the book of Ephesians and see this work of our triune God right there in your watchtower version of the Bible. Now the fourth thing is this gives us, helps us with our language. And I I gave this example already, but I just want to conclude with it. It's important that we have right language and that we communicate things well. The doctrine of the Trinity... um, you get a preposition wrong and you're, you've, you're, you're almost entering into heresy. And so it, it, it's, and I don't think that God's going to judge us for that. If we get something on accident wrong, but what we are called to do is actually articulate correctly what God has given us. And there's maturity and maturing that takes place in the Christian life, Right? So a new Christian that just comes to Christ, am I going to expect them to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity in whom we're baptized as well as a Christian that's been a Christian for 10 years? No, there ought to be a difference. There ought to be a difference. And so actually thinking through this gives us language in order to properly communicate, to teach others But also it helps us to think properly to where if I said, well, it's only the Spirit that sanctifies us, you could say to me what? Well, no, it's a work of the triune God. The Father sanctifies us. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. The Son sanctifies us. Because that's what God has shown us. And so it gives us language to think about. As you go through the Scripture... I want you to take note of those things as you're reading it. It will open the Scripture to you in a way that you you, you haven't seen before. When you begin to take note, who's being referenced? The Father's being referenced. Who's being referenced here? It's the Son now. How are these works going together? And then asking this question, well, does it say that the Father does this work that's speaking of, of Christ here? And then what, what happens is you're now going through your Bible and it's coming alive for you. Does that take work? Does that take effort? Absolutely. Is it worth it? Yeah, absolutely. It's worth it. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious triune God, you are our great God in heaven. You who called into existence out of nothing of the heavens and the earth. It is you who maintain them. You, our Heavenly Father, maintain all things through your Son and the power of your Spirit. We praise you, our triune God. And as we look to your word, we pray that we would come to a greater knowledge of you, the mystery of your nature, and how you, who you have revealed yourself to us as. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.